If you have your Bibles with you this evening, open with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. We've all heard of Tanya Harding, who had thugs take a lead pipe to the legs of her skating competition. Perhaps you've heard of the mother in Texas who whose daughter was trying out for cheerleaders, and uh, there was one girl in particular that was a very tough competitor, and so the mother took out a contract to have her rubbed off, rubbed out uh, so that her daughter could take her place on the cheerleading squad. And these are examples of female aggression run amok. They are an eruption of a more subdued violence that is played out daily on the battlefields of women's relationships. And particularly in the halls of our schools and in our lunchrooms and in our churches, uh, profoundly in young ladies that are growing to become mature, but not limited to that. I told you Sunday night when I ministered on uh, choosing your friends carefully, I uh, was going to minister the next few services that I had uh, in the pulpit on uh, issues that relate directly or indirectly to school as the kids are going back there. And so, much like Sunday's offerings, I'm gearing this towards school-aged girls particularly, but not limited to, uh, even as we know that men are just boys with more expensive toys, we know that women are just girls with more honed skills at manipulation. (laughs) And so uh, we're not limiting what I'm going to say tonight to young girls. This will apply to... Uh, more mature women here tonight as well. And you're just going to have to sort of pick through it as I throw it out there and decide uh, what applies to you and uh, what you're going to deal with. And so I want to preach from a... uh, I think it's a very humorous portion of Scripture. You may not, but I think it's very humorous. And so uh, let's read in Genesis 29, beginning with verse 30. This is one of the most notorious catfights in the Bible. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing 
Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here's my maid Bilhah. Go unto her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With a great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Then Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Jacob went on a long vacation and said, I can't hang with this anymore. <laughs> and then he came back and Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. And Jacob said, oh no. <laughs> so she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed so she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? <laughs> and Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> and he lay with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again, bore Jacob a sixth son, and Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. Uh, so, he so she called his name uh, Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name uh, Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, I pray tonight that you'll help us, God, uh, to learn something from it tonight. Uh, you'll help us, God, uh, to understand some issues of the human heart and to deal uh, with those issues accordingly. I pray, God, that you'll give insight and revelation. You'll particularly open the hearts of young ladies here today who desperately need to understand the dynamics that they function in and have a grasp on what they will and will not give themselves to. I pray tonight that those that do not know you would be brought to salvation by your grace and you would rule in this place in every heart and life. I pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So before I go any further, the first thing I want to do is give you this disclaimer. The things I'm going to discuss are not necessarily limited to females. Males are also driven by the issues that we're going to be looking at, popularity. They have genuine bouts of jealousy. 
uh, often are manipulative in their relationships. Uh, uh, they are competitive. They are aggressive uh, and often egocentric and self-seeking bullies. Uh, and all of these things can be said of men. The thing about that is that we already know that about men. We expect that of men. Men are competitive. Men are aggressive. And that's part uh, and parcel of a, man, of a man's world. And so we recognize that. And there's a certain element uh, in our thinking that says that's what men are about. But the truth of the matter is, what I want to look at is these same dynamics at work in women. And many times we gloss over that. This is a veiled realm because this isn't what we associate with women. We don't associate competition. We don't associate aggression. We don't associate many of the things that we come to expect of boys from girls. And so there are some issues here that I'm going to address that you probably are very much aware of, but on a uh, perhaps a subconscious or subliminal level. You're not, it's not something that you're, you're, often confronted with or have to think through. A book called Odd Girl Out by Rachel Simmons. I, I will be quoting it from it extensively this evening. She writes, There is a hidden culture of girls' aggression in which bullying is epidemic, distinctive, and destructive. It is not marked by the direct physical and verbal behavior that is primarily the province of boys. Our culture refuses girls' access to open conflict and it forces their aggression into non-physical, indirect, and covert forms. Listen to this. Girls use backbiting, exclusion, rumors, name-calling, and manipulation to inflict psychological pain and tar- on targeted victims. Unlike boys who tend to bully acquaintances or, or even strangers, girls frequently attack within tightly knit networks of friends, making aggression harder to identify and intensifying the damage to the victims. Now, now <laughs> I knew I was going to get some hearty amens tonight. Much of what I'm going to share with you tonight has arisen from observations that I have made through the years... But they crystallized as I read this book, Odd Girl Out by Rachel Simmons. Now, this book, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It's an interesting read. What is great about the book is she she has for years researched this. So she has a raft of documented uh, case histories that you can look at and examine. She's a feminist. Her agenda is wrong. Her conclusions are wrong. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of the book, but what I do agree with is her analysis of the feminine culture of aggression. Girls are catty. And they're catty for a reason. See, boys we always associate with dogs because they bark and they pee on the carpet and they're, they're, they're real out there. You can always know what a dog is thinking. You can never know what a cat is thinking. My cat jumps on my bed and I don't know if she's thinking lunch or pet me or I'll scratch your eyes out. I I don't have any idea what my cat is thinking. And most of the time, I don't have any idea what my wife is thinking. I don't have any idea what my my daughter's thinking or what girls are thinking because they're weird. But they look at me and they go, not half as weird as you. And so there's a two-way street here that we acknowledge. 
We understand that, uh, you know, there's great differences between us. I want to zone in, though, on uh, girls this evening. And uh, I want to share with you some things that I've observed. And so you're going to get half a sermon tonight and half a book report. Because a great deal of this book has fed some thoughts. So at any rate, with that in mind, one of the first things that I want to address, especially in light of our context, we're going back to school, we're dealing with issues of our culture and our society. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the, the uh, overarching issue uh, of uh, popularity that is, seems to be a, uh, a thematic, uh, uh, thematic issue when you're talking about this culture of aggression in girls. Our text is a great catfight. Can you say amen? Rachel and Leah are fighting for power and predominance. They are fighting. These are sisters. And, you know, we're sisters, ladies, right? You're sisters. I'm not a sister. I'm a brother. You're sisters. And these sisters are mutually abusive and they are mutually manipulative. And they share common motivations of power and popularity and jealousy that we're going to look at. And this, this, the reason why I chose this text is because it's kind of a living picture of some of the dynamics that we're going to look at tonight. The first being popularity. This is the ultimate issue for young girls in school. Popularity is the apex of human achievement in a young girl's life. It is the ultimate issue for young girls in school. And I might add in church, and I might add in any social context where you have cliques, where you have groups, where you have girls of the same age functioning together, you have the issue of popularity that shows up again and again. This, as I said, even carries on into adulthood and womanhood as you're going to see the root causes of popularity are something we carry with us into adulthood. And so popularity is primary uh, to a young girl. It rides above, in many cases, scholasticism. It rides above uh, Christian character. It rides above the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace. Uh, all of these things uh, are secondary in a young girl's mind uh, to attaining uh, popularity and recognition. Again, quoting from Odd Girl Out, it's, uh, it's ta she's talking about uh, uh, some of the films that have been made about this uh, culture of aggression in young girls and she says a new fairy tale has, was being spun and this time the prince was beside the point in films like she's all that and cruel intentions the romance was with popularity see what she's saying she says we don't need a prince anymore that's not even what we're after we're after popularity the romance was with popularity the transformation of the girl from school geek to click goddess Popularity became so popular that it got its own show on the Warner Brothers channel. There's a show on Warner Brothers called Popularity. In the film Jawbreaker, Courtney is part fairy godmother and mostly witch as she offers Fern the chance of a lifetime. You're nothing, she says. We're everything. You're the shadow. We're the sun. But I'm here to offer you something you never dared dream of, something you were never meant to be. Beautiful and popular. So this is, the, this is the theme of the movie. This apparently is the theme of all these movies that she's citing. I've never seen any of them. I wouldn't recommend that you see any of them. But uh, this is clearly uh, uh, something that 
that people are aware of, that there is this uh, dynamic in life, especially in the life of school-aged girls, uh, where popularity is absolutely critical. In our text, popularity is an issue. Rachel and Leah, Leah are motivated by this. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will become attached to me. They are vying for the affections of this man. In essence, the quest for popularity is the quest to be the center of everything, isn't it? It's to be the most adored, the most loved, to garner the most affection. That's what popularity is at its root. And so when we're looking at Rachel and Leah, we are looking at two women who want that. They are striving for that. They want the affection. They want to be the center of their universe. Men want to conquer the world. Women want to be the world. We, men are, are outward looking. We want to go and just take it. Women want, what do you want out there? Everything is here. There's nothing out there that you need. You have me. This is the way women think. This is why there's lots of conflict in marriages because uh, that's not necessarily the way he sees it. And it is the way that you wish he would see it. And so we can see that this dynamic is at work uh, in uh, general, in women's hearts, and it's, it's at work in very young girls. It's at work, uh, again, it's, it, perhaps an element of this is at work in all of us, but it's very, very pronounced uh, in the feminine gender. We see uh, Rachel and Leah locked into a childbearing race. This has nothing to do with their love of children. It's not why they're doing it. This has nothing to do with their love of being pregnant. I know very few women who are like that. I know one, in fact. She, she gets some kind of endorphin rush off it, and she stays high her entire pregnancy. And so her, her idea of, of a good time is being pregnant and delivering children. Most of the women I know say, I hate my husband <laughs> right after they have a child. Because of the pain and the difficulty of it all. And yet these women are willing to pay that high price. And it is a high price. I've watched my wife give birth to four kids. And every time I thought she was going to die. And, you know, it's a, it's a painful experience. I don't know why women endure this. There's something that God has put in them. They must bear children. But, you know, it would be easier to just go out and get beat up by a biker gang. be quicker (laughs) these women Rachel and Leah are willing to endure this again and again and again and again not for the children not for some maternal instinct but purely so that they can win in the struggle of popularity So that they can win in the struggle of being the center of Jacob's affections. That's the only thing that's motivating them. I want to be the one. I want to be ahead of my sister. I want to be the one that Jacob fawns over. Again, an odd girl out. She says, but here's the truth about girls and popularity. It is a cutthroat contest into which girls pour boundless energy and anxiety. It is an addiction, a siren call. 
a prize for which some would pay any price. Popularity changes girls, causes a great many of them to lie and cheat and steal. They lie to be accepted, cheat their friends by using them, steal people's secrets to resell at a higher social price. It is an accepted fact of life, an 11-year-old advised me, that if girls have a chance to be popular, they will take it, and they wouldn't really care who they were hurting. This is true. I have watched this. I have watched girls struggling to get into cliques, uh, struggling for acceptance, and uh, their desire is to move from this tier to this tier to this tier. And they'll make friends, and then they'll dump those friends so that they can get in with this group. And then they'll make friends, and they'll dump those friends so they can get in with this group. And this is chronic behavior. Amen. Happens all the time. Girls will sacrifice their friends, their values, their family, you name it. Odd Girl Out says the, court, the course of things is simple enough. One girl's window of popularity opens, and she jumps through it, leaving her close or best friend behind. The abandoned find themselves alone with the knowledge that they don't have what it takes to be cool. See, here's the damage that's done. And uh, uh, this girl, out of her own self-interest and her own desire for popularity, uh, will leave behind uh, once-loved friends because of that desire to climb that social ladder uh, and uh, to become uh, something in someone's eyes. The old friend isn't included in the new clique. And so she is ignominiously dumped, sometimes to the extent of being the object of ridicule and mockery as, as the once old friend turns back with her new friends and uh, mock those that are lower on the food chain. Amen. See, the heady drug of acceptance into the desired clique can make you incredibly cruel. And the white-hot glare of popularity makes you blind to how shallow your character is. And how controlling and how manipulative you've become. The drive for popularity is understandable. It's rooted in one of our most profound desires, and that's the desire of acceptance. We understand that it makes you feel good to be part of the cool group. Job writes about it in Job 29. He says, Oh, that I were in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime. So here's Job saying, I wish I was back in the days when life was good. And listen to how he defines that. When my steps were bathed with cream and rock poured out, Rivers of oil for me. When I went to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. The aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand to their mouth. The voices of nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when they saw me, then it approved me. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the song of... So uh, uh, as for the... Uh... Where's the rest of the verse? <laughs> as...
says, for the rain. I know it was there somewhere. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. Or in other words, I could, I had such a relationship with them that we could, you know, joust and there wasn't, nobody misunderstood. The relationships were all really cool. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts uh, mourners. What a fascinating description. It all revolves around his acceptance and popularity. He says, man, that's when life was good. And we know that. We know that instinctively. Girls know that instinctively. And popularity uh, can become a driving and a motivating factor in life. You feel like you're on top of the world, but I want to tell you, the quest for popularity at the expense of righteousness and of character is lethal. And when you put popularity first on your agenda and say, what I want to be is noticed by all the girls and known and loved by a whole school, you are setting yourself up uh, for sure destruction. John 12, 43 says, For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that's what begins to happen. You begin to sacrifice values. You begin to sacrifice friendships. You begin to sacrifice the things that God values. Uh, To acquire popularity, you will become, in the words of Rachel Simmons, a liar, a cheater, and a thief. And you'll do that willingly. Because you want to be someone. Right along with this, perhaps in tandem to this, perhaps created by this phenomenon, is another overarching reality in a young lady's world. And that is the issue of jealousy. This is part of the girly wars too. And again, we can see it in our text. Rachel, the Bible says, envied Leah. She was jealous over the blessings she saw there. She was jealous over the way God was honoring her. She got so upset by it that she starts ragging on Jacob and saying, Listen, I want kids. He says, Look, don't blame me. You know, it's not my fault that God has closed your womb. I didn't do that. That's God's doing. And she's so frantic at seeing, rather than being supportive, rather than being uh, happy that the family is growing, that there's a future, there's a progeny to the family, uh, rather than being excited about the birth uh, of these children, she's not happy about this at all. She's not supportive, she's jealous. Leah sees that she's no longer conceiving. And so she offers her handmaid. She's not giving in. You know, at this point, Rachel's moving out of uh, desperation. She offers Bilhah and says, you know, just that I can have children on my lap, just that I can be involved in the birthing process uh, so that I can claim some kind of progeny, have my handmaid. And so she has some children and Leah is so distraught by the fact that now she's in the game. She, she offers her handmaid. She's already got four kids. This isn't necessary. You're still winning. But she's jealous. She's jealous at the success of Rachel. Even the partial success of Rachel disturbs her. They go through these incredible naming conventions. I love it. A troop is coming. You haven't seen nothing yet. I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. Why would you name a kid that? 
They're firing shots at each other. They're sniping with their children's names. It's incredible. God has judged my case. My husband loves me. Odd girl out. Listen to a group of ninth graders in Mississippi where I asked, how do we feel about a girl who walks into the room who we don't know and who's pretty? We feel offended, Tanya offered. She's the most attractive person, said Melissa, and she's new and she's going to be getting all the attention, Tori finished. We want her to be less confident so she won't talk to our boys. Think about this. The ninth grade girls were looking into their little microcosm. Here comes a total stranger. They don't know anything about her. All they know is she's pretty. It doesn't even say that she's prettier than they are. It just says she's pretty. And just the knowledge that she's pretty is a threat to them. And what they want is to bring her down. They say, we don't, we, we don't want her to be confident. We want her to be less confident. We want to bring her down. And this holds across the board. It's not just physical beauty. A smart girl is a threat. A friendly girl is a threat. A spiritual girl is a threat. See, the typical masculine response to someone coming into the scene that has perhaps something to offer is to compete. That's what men do. We immediately set off to prove that we are the equal or the superior to that threat. A woman, on the other hand, uh, isn't expected to compete. Competing is frowned upon. And so she goes to the jealousy route. And her response is to undermine and to destabilize uh, the threat. If it's true that a woman wants to be the center of the universe, then anyone who threatens that position is going to be a source of jealousy. Amen. Amen. Anybody that has a chance, here we are, two good friends, now there's a new girl comes in, uh-oh, that new girl might become this girl's best friend and I won't be the best friend anymore. Now we got a problem. Now we got a cat fight. Nothing has happened. But we have something in place that will create a sense of jealousy in the relationship. The world being what it is and the girls jockeying for position as they do, jealousy becomes a universal factor in relationships. It's something that girls have to constantly confront and deal with, and many don't deal with it correctly. We see it throughout the Scriptures. We see jealousy playing a role. 2 Samuel 6 shows us David returning with the ark, rejoicing before the Lord. He comes home, and all he feels when he walks through the door is ice. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David was caught up in ecstatic worship. He was not thinking about anything but the presence of God. Michael, however, sees him dancing and prancing in front of other women who just happened to be in the parade route. You know, it's not like he invited them to a private dance concert. <laughs> They're just there. He's ecstatic. He's worshiping before God, but Michael can't deal with it. She sees every one of those young nubile princesses as a threat to her domain. And she's upset. She's moved by jealousy at David's worship 
And the Bible says, as a consequence of that, God closes her womb. She never bears children to the day of her death. God took a dim view of that position. Hagar and Sarah, we're all familiar with this story, very similar to the one we're looking at, where Sarah has been unable to bear children, so she offers Hagar, her uh, maidservant, to Abraham. This was a bad idea. And Abraham went along with it, which was a bad idea. The end result is Hagar ends up bearing a son to Abraham, and there is clearly going to be an affection, there's going to be ties, there's going to be things that begin to happen, and pretty soon Hagar's feeling pretty important, and she starts to diss Sarah, she starts to view her with contempt, and so Sarah comes to Abraham and says, my wrong be upon thee, you've done this, you have opened the door for competition now, and now I've got this Hagar who used to be my maidservant, but now she thinks she's something else. And Abraham turns to her and says, Hey, she's your maidservant, do whatever you want. And Sarah abuses Hagar so badly that Hagar flees into the desert. She'd rather die of thirst and starvation than put up with Sarah's abuse. And Sarah is governed here completely by jealousy. She's governed by the fact that Hagar's been able to do something she couldn't do. Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Who is able to stand before jealousy? Jealousy makes a very cruel person out of you. Makes a very aggressive person out of you. Song of Solomon 8, 6, Set set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. This is the Shulamite woman speaking to Solomon and saying, let me and me alone occupy your heart. Put me as a seal of your heart because I know how I'm going to be if I get jealous. I know how I'm going to be if I start worrying about all the other concubines in the palace. Things are not going to be good around here. Jealousy is like a fire, and it's uncontrollable, and it's something when it gets loose, it does nothing but damage. And so here we are. Listen to me. I'm talking about a culture. I am talking about the dynamics, the social dynamics that you're going to face as you go into school, young lady, and that some of you are facing right now in the church. And perhaps some of you are facing in your maturity. These are issues that I'm sure many of us can pinpoint and relate to. The fascinating thing as you look at all of this is that the choice of weapon when women begin to fight is the issue of relationship. The relationship becomes the weapon. Fascinating. It's in the realm of relationship that girls are able to take their shots. Go back to the earlier part that I read. They use backbiting. They use rumor. They use exclusion. You're not part of me. Cutting people out, saying, you can't run with us. You're not part of our group. The relationships become the target. A blow is seldom thrown in feminine aggression. Sometimes it is. I used to get that a lot down in El Paso, but not so much in Prescott. <laughs> but the destruction's done nonetheless. One girl says, your friends know, they know you, and they know how to hurt you. 
They know what your real weaknesses are. They know exactly what to do to destroy someone's self-worth. They try to destroy you from the inside. Such pointed meanness, an eighth grader explained to me, can stay with you for your entire life. It can define who you are. And there are girls here tonight that are still trying to figure out what you did wrong and why you ended up on the outside and why you are alienated and why you're facing the struggles that you're facing. Betrayal is almost a feminine rite of passage. It's almost something you have to go through because of the nature of the workings of these relationships. Someone finds themselves sitting in the lunchroom or on the pew alone without even knowing why they're there. And they've waded into this minefield of feminine aggression and of feminine sniping. And they, they, they weren't even aware of it. Got caught in the crossfire. Relationships can be exploited to serve one's ends. We see this in the text with both Rachel and Leah using their handmaids to get the best of the situation and to get up on their, on their rivals. It's called alliance building. It goes like this. Spotting a conflict on the horizon, a girl will begin a scrupulous underground campaign to best her opponent. Like a skilled politician, she will methodically build a coalition of other girls willing to throw uh, their support behind her. Friends who have endorsed her will ignore the target, lobby others for support, or confront the target directly until she is partly or completely isolated. This is incredible. But this is what goes on. Is they team up and, and they say, you know, Susie did this. And this begins to spread. And they build a coalition. And then that entire coalition is aimed against this one poor girl. She's on her own. There's no way she can withstand it. And she is thrown into what for a girl is absolute hell. And that is isolation. No relationships. Stay away from Susie. She's no good. And that kind of thing can stick with a woman her entire life. Often that alliance will actually put up a frontal assault with mockery, humiliation, taunting, all sorts of cruelty. These tactics are brought into play whenever there's an element of anger, an element of jealousy, a, co a competition for popularity, all of the things that we're looking at, all of this... Uh, sniping and fighting that goes along beyond, below the surface of relationship is commonplace and it's what every young lady in this place is going to have to deal with as you go back into school. I've observed everything that I've preached about tonight in the churches that I've pastored, in Cortez, in El Paso, here in Prescott. I've seen this go on. I've watched it. I've watched girls be completely destroyed by their friends. By their friends. I've seen sister turn against sister. I've seen this go down so many times. And the reason why I'm preaching this, and I conclude with this, the reason why I'm bringing all of this to the surface is to make you look at it. And then to realize what substandard Christianity this kind of living is. What unacceptable living this is. It may be the law of the jungle, but it's not the law of the kingdom. It may be the way the girls are out there, but you can't be one of them. 
you have to reason in your heart, settle it tonight. You know what? Popularity is not all that critical. And I refuse to enter into the politics. I refuse to enter into the aggression. I refuse to enter in to the wounding and the battle and the warfare that is so typical in the schools and in the cliques that I live with. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times. See, kingdom friendship is a whole different dynamic. If I am going to be a true Christian, then I am going to value the relationships that I build. And I'm not going to sacrifice them. And I'm not going to leave them behind so that I can move into something else. And I'm not going to treat my friend as if she's some kind of anathema. And I'm not going to treat her like she shouldn't be a part of what I'm going on, what's going on in my life. It says a brother is born for adversity. That means even in conflict, even when my friend and I are having conflict, I'm not going to turn these weapons on them. Because this friendship has to endure. It's important to God and it's important to me. It's important to my life. Christian friendship has to be different. It has to be different than the world's friendship. At its very root, it has to have forgiveness as its primary tool. Okay, something happens. Something goes on. There's a problem. There's a competition. Whatever it may be. Anything that I've talked about tonight. What we have to deal with that with is forgiveness. I have to forgive you. You have to forgive me. And we have to go on uh, even though there's been a bump in the relationship. And we have to fight that relationship through. There's a defining passage on friendship found in Ruth. Chapter 1, 16 and 17. It says, but Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death parts you and me. They're not getting married. They're just friends. But they've made a vow that's almost tantamount to marriage, isn't it? I will not violate this covenant. I will not violate this friendship. I will not sacrifice this friendship for any personal gain. I will not sacrifice this friendship because it's hard or because we've come to a crossroads where we see things differently. I will not sacrifice this friendship. Balance to that is what I preached last week, obviously. When they're jeopardizing your own soul's salvation, you have to be careful. But even at that, they become a target of your prayer, not a target of your spite. See, true friendship, unlike the battlefield that I've described, is the greatest resource you can have. See, a lot of girls here, you're uncomfortable. You don't even know where you stand with your friends. Do you? You don't have to raise your hands. But you don't even know where you stand with your friends. There's a great quote. I didn't copy it down, but in that book, they were, they were interviewing this girl, and she said something to this effect. She said, you know, I like to think that we're all friends, but then I think if my friends are like me, 
then they're talking about me. Because I talk about them. And so I really don't know who my friends are. And there are girls here tonight, you don't know who your friends are. Because you're caught up in this whole swirling drama that has launched all kinds of weirdness into your life. You don't even know what you said to sister so-and-so, but now she's mad at you and you don't know how to heal the relationship. And she won't tell you what's wrong. And you've even asked her several times, what did I do wrong? And she just looks at you and says, nothing. (laughs) Right, ladies? And you find yourself excluded and you're not part of the same group of people that used to love you and used to have affection for you. And you don't don't even know why. Because nobody's willing to confront the issue. They just play these games instead. True friendship has to have a different dynamic at its root. Dinah Crake writes, Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Could you be that person with whom your friends feel utterly safe? Certain that anything they spoke to you was to be kept in confidence, not sold to the highest bidder? Or do they have to jump through your hoops to be your friend? Could they be confident that you love them as they are? Are your friendships free of manipulation? Will your friendships survive conflict? See, these are questions you have to ask yourself. You say, what kind of a friend am I? What kind of a friend am I? If you failed friends in the past, my advice to you is the same as Jesus gives. Go to that offended one and bring reconciliation before you put your gift on the altar. You need to determine that the quality of your friendship is going to be different than what's out there. And that you're not going to get into the girly wars. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed this evening. It's a very pointed sermon with a very pointed audience. I understand that it doesn't have equal application across this congregation. But all of us could examine our own hearts in light of a biblical standard of friendship. Speaking perhaps to those who are not saved here tonight, you're not saved, you don't know Jesus, you don't even know how to forgive because you've never been forgiven yourself. You carry with you the weight of your sin, the burden of your sin. And you hate your sin, you hate what it's made of you, you hate what it does to you, but you don't know how to get free. You don't know how to be a different person. You've tried to be a different person. Maybe you're addicted to substances. Maybe your problems are uh, more heart issues, issues of the mind, issues uh, of relationship, but you try to be different and you can't get free. 
That's because the Bible makes it very, very clear that sin is a taskmaster. We are slaves to sin, Paul says. Sin controls us. It dictates. It's a disease in each one of us that deforms us and makes us less than what God created us to be. It brings us down. It ruins us. And as you grow older, you get more hopeless and more resigned to a life of sin. You say, well, that's just the way I've lived and I take my pleasure where I can and just live with the consequences as they come my way. But it doesn't have to play that way. Because Jesus Christ died for all of us. In a miracle moment, He shed His blood for our salvation. That blood can wash away the sin of our lives. It can actually work a new life into us. A miracle of transformation. God can do that for you tonight. I have a hard time believing that. Well, I had a hard time believing that. But when I finally bowed my knee and I came to God on His terms and I said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my heart and change me. At that moment, God came into my heart and changed me. Did something so real and so profound that that for days I was almost out of my mind with the revelation of the reality of God. How real He is. How true He is to His Word. And you're here tonight. God's promise extends to you. God is willing that no man should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. You're here tonight. You want to know God. You want to know the truth. You want to be set free by the blood of Christ. You want to be a new creature. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around, would you just raise your hand and let me pray with you tonight? If you want God to touch you, you're a sinner and you know it, and you're tired of a life of sin, you're tired of making bad choices, bad decisions again and again, you have a a, a complete uh, train of regrets that you tow around with you, and you want to get free of that, you want God to do something real in your life, would you raise your hand right now? Say, pray for me. I want, to, I want forgiveness. I want grace. I want to know God. I want to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Would you raise your hand all over this building? Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you've known how good God is, but by bad choices, you've ended up completely out of the grace of God. You're living for yourself. You're not in fellowship with the church. You're not in fellowship with Christ. You're not in fellowship with anything. You just live in your own sinful pleasures. Even though once God touched you, you're not living in that grace. You may be believing the lie of eternal security. Going on thinking that everything's okay. You can live however you choose. and You prayed as a kid and so everything's fine. But that doesn't get it. I'm sorry. There's too many scriptures that completely squash that kind of thinking. You're here tonight and you're backslidden and you know it. You know you're away from God. Would you raise your hand and say, pray for me. I'm not right with my Creator. I'm not right with my Savior. I see this hand. God bless you, sir. Others would be honest before God. Join this honest heart. You'd say, I'm backslidden, man. I know how good God is. And I'm I'm ignoring Him. I'm ignoring His grace. I'm treading underfoot like some common thing. The miracle of salvation. I'm not even living it. Here's my hand. Would you join this honest heart? Backslidden or unsaved? Anyone at all? Speaking then to Christians in this place. Take what I've said to heart and digest it. 
I have done my best to describe a culture of subdued and invisible aggression, just uh, dynamics of relationship that are hard to fathom. But I reckon every woman in this place can identify with some of the things I've said and say, yeah, I remember that. That happened when I was in school. I remember that happening to me. I remember doing that to my girlfriends. I remember those things. I remember the backbiting and the rumors and the, the politics of the cliques. I remember the way we played against each other. I remember losing friends and never regaining them. I remember seeing relationships destroyed and not having any idea how to fix them. I want to tell you, Christian, tonight we're called to a higher standard. And we're called to a commitment to our friends to build friendships and to cause those friendships to work. And I understand there are times when that becomes impossible. You do your best and it simply won't happen. You can walk away from that with a clean conscience if you've done everything you can to preserve that friendship, if you've invested, if you've made yourself available, if you've genuinely loved. And that's what God has called us to. He's called us to a standard of love that transcends this world. You're going back into school. Don't get into that game. Don't get into those cliques. Don't get into the popularity thing. Don't get into the jealousy thing. Don't compete with your peers. Do what you can to show them Christ. Do what you can to show them genuine love. Show them there's a better way. It'll blow their minds. I believe there's many young ladies and perhaps uh, mature women tonight that God's spoken to your heart about violation in friendships, uh, the way you treat each other, the cat fights, some of the things that you've given yourself to, and you're ashamed of those things. God wants to cleanse you. God wants to help you. God wants to put your relationships on a good footing. There are some ladies here tonight, you need to go back to relationships that have been harmed by things that you've done, and you need to do the best you can to restore those relationships. Uh, we're going to open these altars. Uh, as we do, I would ask this young man to look up at me, you raised your hand.